Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Brent Johnson. Brent, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. We were just talking about before we got online here, we almost want to do a tour around the world in terms of currencies. And where I'd love to start is the dollar. So the dollar um, you know, has been has retraced quite a bit this year, found a bit of a bottom around July and has bounced back a bit. Um, but I, I'd love to just get your thoughts generally on where the dollar's headed. Yeah, sure. So it's it's interesting timing because you know a year ago we were at your conference in New York, and uh, at that time, um, you know, the dollar was basically near its thirty-year high. Yeah. Uh, around that same time period, you know, many of the other central banks around the world were in the process of either bailing out their sovereign bonds or dramatically easing their monetary policy in order to support their economies. And at the same time, VIX was at its highest point in two years and U.S. equities are just generally global equities were at their lowest point in two years. And we were kind of at the point where things were either going to get dramatically worse or they were going to get better. And, you know, the, the central, this is where you kind of got to give credit to the central banks and the monetary authorities because they did, they came in at kind of the end of uh, October, end of September last year. Um, these foreign central banks kind of bailed out their markets right around the same time. You know, Chairman Powell in the U.S. started to signal that, you know, we were still going to be higher for longer and there were still rate hikes ahead. But, you know, the pace was probably going to start to slow. And so with the the expectation of further U.S. rate hikes getting to slow or fall and with the actions of the foreign central banks, it, you know, the, the dollar pulled back. And it had probably, it, 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 I thought it was going to pull back. You know, we even uh, sent out a tweet the day of the high saying this was a logical place for it to pull back. I thought it might pull back to the 105 to 107 level. It actually got all the way down to 99 uh, back in July. So it went a little further than I thought. And, um, but, you know, never get these things 100% right. And, and so, but then, you know, since July, you know, the dollar has started to bounce back and now it's around 105. So it's, that's a pretty big move. It's, it's up nine weeks in a row. I mean, that's, so I, I've even said now it's probably due for a little bit of a breather or a pullback, but heaven help the world if I'm wrong and the dollar just continues to skyrocket here. Um, and again, I think if, if people were to just look back at last September and where everything was last September and understand that that correlated with the dollar being at a 30-year high, you get a pretty good understanding of why the dollar going higher is not a great thing for the world, right? Or at least the world monetary system. And so now we've had that hard sell-off, uh, you know, Called the fifteen percent pullback in the DXY over the last uh, year, and you know, of course, you know, earlier this year we had all of the de-dollarization memes came back, and all of the BRICS memes came back, and the dollar was dead, and this time it really was going to fall. And right at the, about the time that kind of chatter crescendo, the dollar turns around and is up six percent in seven weeks, or six weeks, or eight weeks, whatever it is. Um, and so. I don't really know quite honestly where it's going to go from right here. It makes sense to me that it would be time for just a pause or, or a leap. But here's the thing is if, if I'm wrong and the dollar, and listen, this is not changing my, my long-term outlook at all. 
long-term, the dollar is going much, much higher. Or medium-term, the dollar is going much, much higher. In the really near future, I'm not sure. But what I would say is that, you know, despite all the rhetoric, despite all the memes, <clears throat> there is still an incredible amount of demand for U.S. dollars around the world. And a lot of the times when you see these de-dollarization headlines, there is great desire to de-dollarize, but the ability to actually do it has not changed meaningfully, you know, in, in decades. And the, the desire may be higher, but again, there's more U.S. dollar debt today issued by non-U.S. entities than ever before. There's more demand today for U.S. dollars than ever before. And people don't like that. Um, and they, they, there's great desire to get away from that, but that's currently the facts. And that is why, despite all the record, you know, monetary involvement and manipulation and money printing and helicopter money, that is why the dollar is still above its pre-COVID highs or, or you know, its COVID highs. And it's why, despite all of the, the rhetoric, otherwise the dollar's up nine weeks in a row. And a big part of that is not just what's going on in the U.S., it's what's going on in the rest of the world. I right. think, I, th I think in many ways people focus too much on the United States. I get why they do, uh, but there's a lot of problems in other parts of the world as well. So I think that the the low back in July was probably the low for the dollar. Um, wouldn't surprise me if it pauses here for a while, pulls back a little bit. But I expect you know over the next year or so, I think the dollar's going much higher than it is today. Yeah. So you know, before we go on to the rest of the world, because I think that's a, a key part of the story. And and one detail, by the way, just in terms of the dollars, uh, the demand for the dollar, this doesn't necessarily that, you know, when you look at something like global debt or the US dollar denominated debt, that's not stuff we owe everyone else, right? People borrow and lend dollars on their own balance sheets and have their own trading relationships between each other just using the dollar, which I think is a point that often gets lost. But t take your point, I, I want to go out to the rest of the world in a second. I, I would love to, for folks who haven't heard you sort of break down the relationship in between a country's currency and their bond market. If you could just kind of start with that. And then I, I would love, you know, to get your thoughts on one of the big news stories, I think, and it's especially been, I think, moving yields on the long end of the curve over here in the US is this amount of supply that's coming online in terms of treasuries and where the market is going to absorb that supply. So you just kind of just refresh listeners on that relationship between a country's bond market and their currency, and then just talk about some of the, the issuance that's coming out of the U.S. here. I'm going to say something which I know people aren't going to like, <laughs> but, but, but it's important to understand this, is there's, there's all, there is a relationship between a country's bond market and their currency. And the last thing any country wants to see is their, the rate that they have to pay on their sovereign bonds to be spiking because that is often a sign of distress or people wanting to get paid more to hold a potentially um, defaulty bond. It is different when the U.S. does it than when everybody else does it. Now, it doesn't mean that the U.S. isn't subject to these same issues, and it doesn't mean it can't happen to the United States, in other words. It doesn't mean that we couldn't have a bond boycott, but it is different with the United States for a couple of reasons, because we are the global reserve currency. And as the system is designed now, if you operate on the global stage, you have to have dollars to do it. Now that may change someday, and there's efforts being done to change that today, but those other 
potential means or distribution systems or monetary systems, however you want to describe that, are not active in a large enough capacity today to change the fact that you still need dollars to operate on the global stage. So that, that's number one. Um, number two with the U.S. is they are purposefully raising interest rates. They are purposefully tightening policy. They want interest rates. They, they, they not only wanted interest rates to go up, but they, they, as of now, are still saying we want them to stay higher for longer. So this idea that the, that the, that the rate on the U.S. Treasury going up a lot is a signal that the rest of the world is rejecting the dollar and is rejecting and boycotting U.S. Treasuries, it's just not the case. Now, I know many people want it to be the case, but it's just not the case. Every U.S. Treasury auction over the last, I don't know how many years, has been oversubscribed, meaning there's more demand than the Treasury is auctioning off. And it's not, and they're not just meeting the demand. It's, it's, you know, over two and a half times, there's always, there is historically about two and a half times the amount of demand as there is supply for every U.S. Treasury. And as the, as the, as the interest rate goes up and some countries that, again, that, that's a, that's an indication that you don't want to hold that currency because there's counterparty risk. Again, because there's so much demand for the U.S. dollar and people have to use it whether they want to or not. The fact that you now get paid more to hold a U.S. dollar is like an added bonus. And that is part of the reason the dollar has remained strong, is that as, the, as it, when countries around the world, when they get their dollar surpluses from trading with the United States, they either turn around and save those in T-bills or T-bonds or you know, medium-term bonds or long-term. So that is the method via which they hold their surpluses. And so if you get paid more to hold dollars, which you already need, than you do to hold euro, which you don't really need, or yen, which you don't really need, or yuan, which you don't really need, you're going to go with the, with the one that you need and that pays you more, right? And so capital flows into the dollar, and that has made, you know, that, that has kept the dollar relatively strong versus other currencies. Um, the other thing I would say is that the fall in U.S. Treasury prices over the last year, this should not be a surprise to people. I think it is a surprise to people because we had basically a 40-year bondable market. And every time we had a hiking cycle, um, they just didn't last very long. But if you go back to every hiking cycle, when I'm talking about hiking cycle, I mean a Fed rate hiking cycle, when the Fed is purposely raising rates. There's been seven times the Fed has raised rates since the late 70s. Um, on the other times when they have raised rates, such as they have now, now 19, the, 1978 to 1981 is about the closest approximation to what we have going on now. When, when, when they did that in 78 to 81, the long-term U.S. Treasury bond decreased by about 35%. In that case, they took rates from approximately 8% to 20%. So they more than doubled them, right? I think it was like a 200% increase or something, or 150% increase. This time, in 18 months, they have taken rates from zero to 5.5%. So that's a 2,000% increase, right? So they've taken from zero to now. That's a huge move in interest rates. Um, over an 18 month period. Now, again, going back to the late seventies, they, they took them from eight to 20 
in about three years, so 36 months. So it, after that time, this, this time, you know, they've taken them from zero to five or five and a half. In the late 70s, from 78 to 81, when they did that during that hiking cycle, the long-term U.S. Treasury bond decreased in value by about 35%. The big decrease. That is almost exactly what the long-term Treasury bond has decreased this time. As interest rates rise, bond prices fall. So this idea that everybody is boycotting U.S. Treasuries, and that is why the price of U.S. Treasuries has fallen, it's really not correct. I'm not saying that everybody still loves the idea of buying U.S. Treasuries, but this price move, considering the move in interest rates, should not be shocking if you understand bond math and what that interest rates rise, bond prices fall. Um, and, you know, I, can't, I don't have time to go through all the other seven rate hiking cycles, but suffice to say is this rate hiking cycle is not that much different than the previous seven. It's just that we don't have them very often because we've been in this low growth environment where, where central banks have not been raising rates, you know, for the last couple of decades. But now that they are, it's kind of in line with what has happened before. Now, where does it go from here? Is it possible that things are different at the time? Yeah, it's absolutely possible things are different this time. But so far, it is pretty, it is pretty standard. Yeah. And there's a there's also an element of convexity when it comes to bond math as well. Without going into the details, the yeah. move from zero percent interest rate, you know, zero percent interest rate up to one percent is very different from six to seven or something like that. Right. right? It's exactly. uh, there's exactly. an element of convexity. The, you know, it's I'm always a little bit divided on. I saw someone on Twitter a long time ago said that most of Twitter is just people arguing over different timelines. And I think that applies a little bit to this argument, which is, you know, on a long time frame, I think the U.S. is subject to the same rules of financial gravity that everyone else is to an extent. I agree. On a short term time frame, I, I don't think that's probably the case just because of our position as the issuer of the reserve currency. It's very interesting. Uh, I'll give a shout out to my colleague, Jack Farley, who did a great interview with Sir Paul Tucker, who is an ex-central uh, banker from the Bank of England. And just hearing the way that he talked about it, you know, uh, almost like there are two types of money. There are many more than even two types of money, but really there's sort of commercial everyday use money. And then there's treasuries are in a, in a sense money and they're interest-bearing money as well. And he talked about the relative amount of global demand for non-interest-bearing money and interest-bearing money. And as you might expect, the demand for interest-bearing money is actually much higher because it, it bears interest. Sure. So um, yeah, that, I, I'm a little torn in between being nervous as a relatively young citizen of the United States about you know, how much debt we're issuing. And it does seem to keep going up and up and up. But at the same time, there's clearly a global demand for it. And I, I like your theory a lot, Brent, as well, which is ancient empires, you know, they sort of used to exact tribute. And we, you know, a modern form of tribute might end up looking something like, hey, you, we are leaning on you to essentially buy our bonds um, and service our debt. So that's right. And, and the, the other thing I would say, and I know we're going to get, this is going to relate to talking about other currencies. And mm. the other thing I'd say is that the U.S. has a power that no other country has. And it's not only the fact that there's demand for U.S. dollars outside our domestic shore that helps it. Um, but because of that demand for U.S. dollars outside the United States and because the dollar is the global reserve currency, the U.S. can use its domestic monetary policy to great effect around the world. So they can force actions abroad by using their own domestic um, 
monetary policy. And one thing I would say is that countries around the world store their excess U.S. dollars in treasury bonds. And so as the U.S. raises rates, that makes the value of those bonds that the rest of the world owns decrease in value. And so it's kind of like if the rest of the world is going to sell their bonds when we are raising interest rates, yeah, you can sell your bonds, but you're going to get, you're going to take a haircut to do it. In other words, it's almost like the U.S. saying, okay, you're going to sell them, no problem, but you're, you're going to get 80 cents on the dollar or you're going to get 90 cents on the dollar. You're, you're not going to sell them for the price that we sold them to you, right? And no other country really has the ability at least not to the same level that the U.S. has to do that. And so this also plays into, you know, this, these charts that go around that show a decrease in holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds. Some of that is due to sales. Some of that is just due to the value of the bonds going down. And on the periods where it is showing actual sales, these other countries, and I'll use, I'll use Saudi Arabia as an example because it's the easiest to demonstrate. It's, it's not, they're not selling, or at least they're not necessarily selling from a position of strength. Sometimes they are selling from a position of weakness because they just need dollars. And this is, this is best illustrated by, um, by Saudi Arabia back in 20. Yeah, here it is. This is perfect. This is best illustrated by Saudi Arabia in 2020. Everybody knows what happened in 2020. And so some people will look at this chart and they'll see this massive drawdown in treasuries owned by Saudi Arabia in 2020. And some people will say, this is a pure sign that they are selling treasuries. They no longer want to finance the U.S. national debt. These, you know, they know that the dollar is losing value. They don't want to be exposed to it anymore. Well, what's really happening here, think about where we were at in February of 2020. What, and what happened you know, within the next month? Within the next month, we had a global crisis, global business around the world shut down. And guess what happened to the price of oil? The price of oil went negative. And who uses, who, who relies on oil revenues more than anybody else in the world? Saudi Arabia. So what happens when you get in trouble and your revenue dries up? Well, you have to start raiding your savings. So they start selling their treasury bonds because they're running budget deficits. They are no longer, you know, running surpluses. And so they have to sell these things. It's not that they necessarily want to sell them. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that some of the de-dollarization that takes place is not by choice, but it's by force or it's by circumstance. So, you know, what really goes on in all the different cases when people sell treasury bonds, you kind of you kind of have to understand what's going on in the country overall to understand whether or not this is a forced sale, whether it's a distress sale, whether it's by choice, whether it's from a position of power or whether it's a, from a position of weakness. Um, but I think a lot of times when people just throw up these charts and it shows this de-dollarization and that's automatically bad for the United States, it's to kind of get it wrong a little bit. This was a really good call out, Brent. And by the way, for folks who are following along just via audio, we're looking at Saudi Arabia's holdings of U.S. treasuries going back to 88 through the present day. And for basically between 88 and 04, they were, it was ranging somewhere around, um, 
20 billion, but it's gone all the way up. Basically, it's a one-way street up actually from 04 to peaking in just about 20, February of 2020 at 184 billion, and it's down to 108 uh, as of June of, of this year. But uh, all of Bread Sports, I, there's a lot more that just goes into a very simple chart here, and you've actually shared one other ones as well. Uh, one other one as well, which is uh, U.S. holder, U.S. Treasury holdings of China, and this doesn't take into account right the amount that you know Treasuries have dipped. So yeah, just well, that's the thing is that they'll they'll use the chart to show that the the China's unloading bonds, and and I'm sure they have in some cases, right? The, again, when you're selling your bonds, that's typically because you need dollars. But what's not typically said when these charts are put up as part of the reason these are coming down is the bond prices themselves has come down. Again, this isn't number of bonds held. This is right. the, the, the dollar value of the bonds that they hold. The other thing that's not clear when you just post this chart is that the Chinese, uh, in general, the, the government agency bonds holdings have been going up at the same time. So if you adjust for the decrease mm. in treasury price and you adjust for the fact that they're just swapping from one form of U.S bond to another form of U.S. bond, it changes the story a little bit. And again, this this is not to say that it can't happen to the United States. And it's not to say that everybody loves the U.S. dollar and loves U.S. treasury bonds. But if, if you're putting your money on the line, it's important to understand what these things are saying, what, what they're actually saying, as opposed to what you want them to say. Yeah. I agree. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of Blockworks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but Blockworks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Well, since since we started talking about China a little bit, I, I want to start moving over to that corner of the world. But before we do, I want to stop at Japan. So you and I talked a little bit the last time that you were on the program about the yen. The yen, the yen dollar cross, it's been a rough year for that, that particular cross. And the yen has been, at least for a large period of time, pretty much in, in free fall against the US dollar. Um, now, the Japan and the yen occupies a very unique sort of place within the financial world. But you know, I heard you recently talking about there's actually another implication that I hadn't necessarily put together, which is the sort of competition in between China and Japan as trade partners, right? So when you have a weakening yen, it actually puts quite a bit of pressure on China. And you know, the China opening that we were promised at the beginning of this year, or not promised, but at least this was the narrative that they've been locked up forever and they're going to come back online and it's going to be a huge shot in the arm for the global economy. That clearly has not happened. And if anything right now, I would say the narrative is more that China might be forced to devalue the currency yet again. So you just give us a sense of what's going on in in Japan with the yen, and then maybe we can segue our way over to, to China. Sure. Well, and, and here's the thing is, it's almost impossible to talk about one country without talking about another. Everything is right. so interconnected and related to each other now in this globalized world that it's really hard to, so if people think we're jumping around, we're really not, right? <laughs> it's all related. But, but I think the yen is really, really important. And it may be the most important currency cross right now. 
uh, because uh, the yen is down versus the dollar. I'm just going to, I don't know exactly. Down 25 or 30% in the last 12 to 18 months, oh, okay. which is an yeah. absolutely enormous move for a, for a currency, let alone a major currency like the yen. So the three biggest currencies in the world are the euro, the yen, the dollar, right? And so for, for a, you know, it's not totally unusual to see a move like this for like an emerging market currency, but for a major currency, it's a huge move. And so the, the, the yen has lost value. And part of the reason, again, is this monetary policy divergence between the United States and Japan. What I mean by that is over the last year and a half, the U.S. has purposefully tried to slow the economy and slow the ascent or perhaps even decrease the value of U.S. assets. The reason their U.S. is doing that is because they want to fight inflation. And, the, and one of the ways that you fight inflation is, you know, you, you contract the economy, you increase the cost of borrowing so that the money is not as plentiful. Not only that, but when you raise rates, this is kind of, I'm, I'm going to transition to Japan, but I should make this point with regard to the U.S. first. Yeah. You know, because Powell um, is raising rates, and, and you may think central bankers are dumb or foolish or misguided or whatever it is, but I guarantee you they understand if they raise rates, the bond prices fall. Part of the reason that they raise rates is in the treasuries fall. When treasuries fall, there's not as much collateral then to make new loans. That it, decreasing the value of treasuries is a way of constricting credit, which they believe will then lead to prices coming down. Okay. So now let's take it back to Japan again. During the same time that the Fed is raising rates and pulling capital or raising the cost of capital in the United States, Japan has kept on its easy monetary policies. And they have had yield curve control in place for a very long time. I don't even know the number of years. Basically, what that means is that they cannot allow price discovery in their bond market the same way that the U.S. allowed price discovery in our bond market. Because if that happens, then for years and years and years, the Japanese banks, uh, endowment funds, pension funds, uh, institutions bought negative, either zero or negative yielding Japanese government bonds. So if interest rates were to rise dramatically or even, even a little bit in Japan, it causes all kinds of problems in the Japanese banking system. But they also are starting to feel the inflationary pressures. And so there's a battle between the currency and the bond. The problem, and but but as they've kept interest rates low and have kept, you know, monetary policy much looser than the U.S., that has led to the yen losing value dramatically against the dollar. The issue that they have, and the, the, this, I find this really interesting because all of the things that people are worried about one day happening to the United States are already happening right now today in Japan. And that is that they have already had to make the choice. Do we save the currency or do we save the bond market? If they raise rates to save the currency, then the bond market blows up and the banking system blows up. But if they don't raise rates, then the currency continues to slide and the purchasing value of the yen continues to drop. And eventually they get, you know, a, a loss of confidence in the currency. The problem with trying to fight both of them is that the policies that would save the currency kill the bond market. And the policies that would save the bond market kill the currency. So they're really caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, the other thing I'll say is that 
In a world where the Fed is the main central bank and all the other central banks are kind of subservient to the Fed because the Fed has the global reserve currency or because the U.S. has the global reserve currency, and because there's been several cases where countries around the world will use their currency, uh, they will decrease the value of their currency in order to increase the value of their, or increase the likelihood of their exports. Many countries will get labeled, quote unquote, currency manipulators by the United States. And, and that leads to either sanctions or problems or, you know, however you want to describe that. But the fact that that has not been said with regard to the yen, despite this huge move, tells me that this did not happen without the U.S. blessing or without the, the, the there's no question in my mind that the Fed and the Bank of Japan have been in multiple conversations about what's going on. And so, and I think this is where it gets into with China. Um, as the yen stays weak, you know, the, the Japanese goods are, are, are competitors with Chinese goods, especially in the Asian region. And as the yen continues to fall, it makes Japanese goods more affordable around the region. And as Japanese goods become cheaper and perhaps better made, then purchasers prefer those goods. And so then that means less goods are being sold from China. And as less goods get sold from China, that means China's revenues fall. That's bad for China because China is having uh, problems on a couple different uh, fronts. First of all, they have the, the, Jap the Chinese real estate market is the big, probably the biggest asset class in the year, uh, uh, in the world. And that they have borrowed so much and the debts are so big in that. And now the value of those is no longer rising. So there's tremendous deflationary pressure inside China in their real estate market. As their revenues fall, it makes it even harder to service those revenues than it already was. And it gets it harder to, uh, to service those loans and to get the prices going back up. And so as, as, the, as, the, as the yuan rises in value versus the yen, it makes it even harder. And so the, I think th there's a little bit of uh, gamesmanship going on here a little bit. Um, and so, but, but China, here's the problem with China's, and th this happens in every country, that it doesn't happen in the United States, is that you can have, in other countries where their domestic currency is not the U.S. dollar, you can have inflationary pressure in local currency terms and have deflationary pressure in U.S. dollar terms as the U.S. dollar rises. And that is because entities all over the world owe U.S. dollars. So as the U.S. dollar goes up in price, it becomes harder to pay those off. Not only that, but as the U.S. dollar goes up in price, commodities, inputs, food, energy, other needed inputs that are traded in dollars become more expensive in local currency terms, right? And so that's kind of what's happening with China. China's uh, imports, uh, luckily for China, the price of oil has stayed fairly low over the last year. It's starting to rise again now, but it's stayed fairly low. Um, and so, you know, they, they are trying to deal with inflationary pressures um, on their inputs because the dollar has gained value and deflationary pressures in their, um, in their domestic real estate market. And the, the weak yuan, I'm sorry, the, the weak yen doesn't really help them out at all. And so this is why some have speculated that eventually in order to combat this deflationary pressure, their real estate market, 
and the fact that their economy is no longer growing at the rate that they expected it to grow, that they may have to devalue the currency. Now, they have tried other things. And to your point, one of the big themes coming into this year was China reopening, right? And China was going to not only, China reopening was going to give us global stimulus to the rest of the world. And that's part of the reason, you know, risk assets and equity markets have held up and generally been okay this year is this China reopening thing. Well, when China reopened and it didn't have much impact, well, then in March or April, now they're going to ease monetary policy. They're going to have a credit uh, credit uh, impulse. And that was going to save it. Well, that happened and not much happened. Things continue to de- deteriorate. And now in the last month, now they've done another one. This time it really is going to work, right? But, so, but, but, but da- you know, the data that just came out last week on China was showing some approval. So maybe, maybe some of these moves that they're doing are finally starting to work. But so far, you know, the China reopening and the Chinese stimulus packages have been very disappointing, not just for China, but for the rest of the world. And again, I think that has contributed to the yuan falling versus the dollar. Um, and uh, it just puts more pressure, uh, you know, on both the yen and, or both Japan and China as, as the dollar stays strong. Yeah, it's, it's almost amazing that the global economy has held up as, as well as it did over this past year. I mean. For the first time in a long time, we actually had a genuine bona fide contraction in terms of the money supply and perhaps more importantly for the global economy, the collateral, right? In the form of the value of US bonds, which everyone holds quite a bit of. And that dollar wrecking ball that I believe you, you've coined, we swung it around and there were a couple of buildings that got hit, you know, some statues maybe here and there, but largely everything has held up. Can I make one other point before I forget? I apologize for for No, 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 please do, please do. I think think this is important to understand. And this is, I think, where people focus exclusively on the U.S. too much and don't really pay attention to the rest of the world. So again, last fall, a year ago this month, China was having problems and was having to dramatically decrease or, or ease monetary policy in order to deal with their, um, you know, internal, uh, economic slowdown. The Bank of Japan had to intervene to support not only the currency, but the bond market. The Bank of England had to go in and bail out the the gilt mark. And even though the ECB raised rates for the first time in a year, about a year ago, they also set up a facility to go buy the, you know, sovereign bonds, targeted sovereign bonds, because Italian uh, yields were starting to spike uncontrollably. So that was an example of the strong dollar causing chaos abroad prior to it showing up in the United States. Now, everybody, though, and we get into this year in, the, in March, and we had this problem in the U.S. banks, right? As interest rates continued to rise, that made the bond holdings of all of these banks who had bought very low-yielding treasuries mm-hmm. fall in value. And that's not a problem when you mark them to market or when you mark them to whatever you purchase them at. But as you have to start liquidating them, now you have to mark them to market. And as that happened, then the bank, the balance sheets on U.S. banks, you know, came under pressure and the U.S. had to set up a facility to offer liquidity to these banks to kind of stop the bank run, right? But again, this started happening abroad before it happened in the United States. Not only that, but the same issues that showed up in the U.S., on the, because of the U.S. banks, because of rising interest rates, these same issues are percolating under the surface in Europe and Asia because 
while the U.S. banks bought a lot of low-yielding treasuries, the one thing they didn't buy was zero-yielding treasuries and negative-yielding treasuries because we never went to negative rates. But you know where they did go to negative rates? They did it in Europe and they did it in Japan. So, and that's part of the reason why Europe and Japan um, has been slower to raise rates than the United States. And this is one of the points that I try to make. Part of the reason that rates have gone so up so much in the United States is because they can and because the Fed wanted them to. You know, and, and, and Powell actually gave a speech. I can't remember if it was a speech or a paper that he wrote about 10 years ago that explained exactly this. As we raise rates, or once we get into an interest rate rising environment, the bonds on bank balance sheets are going to become a problem. Mm. And so... I don't think Powell is surprised that this happened in the U.S. And they probably knew they were going to have to do something, you know, which they've done. But the point I would make is even knowing that they still raised rates because they could, these other countries don't have the same ability to raise rates. And as a result, they don't have the ability to attract capital to their markets the same way that the U.S. does. And if and when they do decide to raise rates dramatically, either because people no longer want to buy their bonds or because they need to attract capital to their markets, it will blow up their bank balance sheets to an even greater extent than what happened in the United States. Because if you think there's convexity on low-yielding treasuries, I guarantee you there's a lot more convexity on a negative-yielding Japanese government bond or a negative-yielding European sovereign bond. Um, so, you know, just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen. And I think that's one thing that people need to be aware of going forward. If you think the U.S. is going to get into a crisis because of their sovereign bonds, because they borrowed so much at low rates, what do you think happens when these other countries, you know, get in trouble because they issued negative yielding bonds? Um, so again, it's, it's important to apply the same level of scrutiny on all different countries, not just one country. I, you know, I think that's a really good point. And I would definitely put myself in the camp of not assuming that all central bankers are morons, which I, I know that sounds, a lot of people do. And I've, I've heard yeah. it asked on podcasts, very smart people. And the assumption is just that these people don't know what they're doing. And that just has never made, that just has never passed the sniff test with me. I don't, that just doesn't feel likely. But, but I do think, you know, if we're going to talk about global central bankers, one thing, a lot of this, you know, what's, what's complicating this, environment of low interest rates is the global phenomenon of inflation. And, you know, my one thing I, look, let's, let's, let's refer to the two periods of time in the U.S. where we had inflation that everyone loves to refer to, the 40s and the 70s. In yep. both of those periods of time, we had stop-start inflation. There were broad spikes and then lapses where it looks like we had conquered inflation. In the 70s, uh, Paul Volcker, Paul Volcker had to actually cause two separate recessions because it looked like we had broken the back of inflation, but then he had to hike interest rates all the way up yep. to 18 or 20% or whatever to finally beat it. And if I just took a really simple, reductive view on our current situation, it sort of looks like we're setting ourselves up to do something pretty similar, right? We've got inflation down, but not 100% where we want it to be. You know, if you're Paul Krugman, you can just remove half of, uh, you know, the cost buckets that people have to pay, and yeah. then inflation's looking great. But for the rest of us, it looks like we are uneasily close to the target, but not quite there. And the ECB, it seems, you know, my interpretation is they've signaled this is most likely going to be it. 
in the US, maybe what the markets are pricing in now is that we get one more hike in November and then we start cutting rates by about March or April of next year. I mean, what is your prognosis for you know, ha- have we broken the back of inflation? And then what ends up happening from here inflation wise? So it's a very good question. And the first thing I'll say is I don't know. And, and typically when I have an opinion, I don't mind expressing it. But if I don't know something, I'll, if, if I don't know something, I'll just say I don't know. And I really don't. I, might, I tend to think inflation is going to continue to come down. But I also think it has the potential to stay sticky longer than ever. There's two camps. One that inflation is going to reaccelerate and another one where it's going to collapse and we're going to have this big deflationary credit contraction at some point. Mm. I'm kind of in the middle ground. And it's funny because for years, I used to hate people that would say stagflation. I thought it was a total cop-out. It was somebody who couldn't, you know, didn't want to make a call one way or the other. But the further we get into this, I'm actually you know, kind of changing my mind and I'm very sympathetic to that because I think in some cases, we're going to see deflationary pressures and in other cases, we're going to see inflationary pressures. For me, it's more important to understand what could cause both and to kind of position a portfolio in a way that if you're right, you make some money. And if you're wrong, you don't get killed, right? And I really don't know which way inflation is going to go. My, I tend to think it's going to kind of stay at these levels and maybe fall a little bit. Um, I don't necessarily think we're going to have this big deflationary crash, but I understand exactly why we could. And I don't think we're going to have this big, fantastic inflationary spiral higher. I understand what cause it too, but I just, I, that's not my basis. So I'm kind of in this I guess my base case is that it kind of continues to trend down like it has over the last year, but maybe not at the pace that many people it will. And this is probably a good point for me to explain. I think some people think that because I am a U.S. dollar bull, that I'm a U.S. bond bull. Thing is, is I'm not a U.S. bond bull, but I'm also not a U.S. bond bear. I just really don't know. And here's the thing is, if, if we get into a deflationary spiral, where U.S. Treasury prices spike and interest rates fall a lot, I think the dollar probably does pretty well in that environment because people will be scrambling for gold. If we get a further inflationary push and Treasury bonds continue to fall, well, that helps the dollar as well because now they're going to have to raise rates mm. even more, right? And, um, you know, in that environment, um, you know, other currencies probably become even less attractive to the United States because what we're not going to have, we're not going to have a situation where the U.S. goes into a massive deflationary recession and the rest of the world grows at a healthy rate, right? And so if we get into the situation where um, either we keep having the, you know, higher inflation and the U.S. maintains interest rates higher for longer, that helps the dollar for all the reasons we've already discussed. You got to own dollars anyway, you get paid more for owning them. Or if we go into this, you know, hard deflationary uh, collapse, um, then we've got uh, demand for dollars because it's collateral. So I just continue to think that the U.S. dollar is better under both scenarios. Now, the scenario where the dollar is not the better choice is global growth, where things get better. The dollar gets a little bit weaker. Credit impulse from China starts to work. You know, Germany doesn't have quite as bad a recession as that seems that they're headed into. U.S. growth picks up a little bit. Maybe they even go back and do, maybe they ease monetary policy. And, and, and maybe the central banks pull off this soft landing. The soft landing is, this, is the negative scenario for the U.S. dollar. I think under either other scenario, um, and by the way, in a soft landing, 
we'll do pretty good because we own a bunch of assets, right? I mean, that's what you need for the, for the global economy to continue running. And for the system to continue running, you need the dollar to kind of weaken a little bit in global growth. You know, under a scenario where the dollar's rising, that's really bad for the current system. That's really bad for the global economy. So, you know, um, if I'm wrong and the dollar falls over the next couple of years, it's probably because the global economy's growing and our assets will do pretty well. And so, you know, I don't mind being wrong under that scenario because the size of portfolios are increasing. Uh, but I think under either other scenario, either inflation stays high or deflation rears its ugly head, I think the dollar does pretty well. So do you think we're going to get that soft landing? I, I, again, I've asked it so many times from so many different guests on, yeah. on the show. I, it's very, this year was certainly surprising. Right? I don't think you would have predicted going into January of this year. And everyone loves to make fun of the, the Bloomberg 99% or 100% of economists polled said we were going to get a hard landing. It hasn't happened like that. Okay, we dunk on the economists, but come on. This was common sense that this was most likely, yep. most likely going to occur. It hasn't yet. Um, may, maybe due to the fiscal uh, that we're pumping in here in the U.S. for whatever reason, right? People have different explanations for why not. Um, the question is what's going to happen from here in terms of a recession and then asset prices and those things may be related or they might be less correlated on a short time frame than you think. But what, I mean, where, where do you think we go from here just in terms of the economy? Did we pass the recession or is that still on the horizon for us? So my base case is that regardless of what happens, the U.S. still outperforms the rest of the world. Um, and it is still a preferred place for global capital under either scenario. Now, as far as I do, what I don't think we're going to have is I don't think we're going to have this nasty crash that leads to like a three or four year recession slash depression. I don't think that that's in the book. I don't think that that's in the cards. I do think my base case is that we will get some kind of a correction here, whether it's you know, Q4 or first part of next year into next summer. Um, but then I think the response to, depending on what the response to that pullback is, then I think we could go much, much higher in U.S. equities. Um, it will kind of depend on what the reaction is and also what the catalyst is to send markets lower. Um, and again, I'm not convinced that a catalyst to send markets lower initiates in the United States. I think it's just as likely that it, it happens outside the United States, whether it happens in China, Japan, or Europe. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I just think that because the U.S. is in better economic shape on a relative basis, that, that, that the trigger is likely to come from abroad. Um, but I am of the opinion that asset prices are fairly high. You know, interest rates have risen a lot. The lag effect is just now going to start showing up in markets. And if even if the Fed doesn't raise anymore and just stays at this level, the longer they keep rates at this level, the tighter monetary policy becomes. Because as all of this debt that exists out there gets refinanced at now higher rates, a bigger percent of those debts are going to be paying based on current rates rather than rates where they were a couple of years ago. And so I think that, that has a natural tightening effect on, on markets. And so I do think we will at a minimum get a pullback and how, how far and hard. And, and here's the thing is once we do start to get a pullback, I don't think the Fed is going to immediately pivot. Again, I, I think the Fed wants to fight inflation. I think, I, you know, I think in a perfect world, they would get three to 4% inflation and they would say that they want to. I think they really want three or four because it helps them inflate away the debt. 
but I think that they will continue saying that they want to. Uh, but if they could get three or four percent inflation for ten years, that knocks off you know thirty three percent of of the national debt, uh, and, and it makes it easier to, to service. Um, and so, if the point being is if if higher rates cause the market to fall, let's say it's a fifteen percent move in the S and P down, I don't think that that bothers them that much. Remember, a year ago the S and P was down a lot more than fifteen percent from here. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think that Powell really worries too much of what the S&P does on a day-to-day basis. Now, I will say that if the sell-off or the correction comes to a point which demands their intervention and to say it's the system, of course they will do it. That is why they exist in the first place. They're there to step into the breach when the system comes under attack and they will save the system or they will at least attempt to save the system. Um, so I, th- I think it's, I think when we get this next pullback, whenever it comes, whether it's next week or next year, I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether it's a globally coordinated reaction by central banks or whether it's all everybody kind of starts doing the one man for themselves. Typically, it's been pretty well coordinated. I think we're getting into the environment now where it's going to start to be less coordinated and more one-off ad hoc policies. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good point. It, I mean, I think it's at some point, right? The the central banks have been somewhat coordinated, not always one hundred percent moving in lockstep. Everyone, you know, you don't have voters abroad, so to speak. But I think in general, they've been they've been moving in a somewhat coordinated way. Uh, Brett, we're, other, we're, on, on, yeah. on that point, let me make one last point on that, and it, because I think this is really important to understand. In the last thirty, we always talk about central bank intervention and coordination. Whenever we talk about central bank intervention coordination, it's always done in an effort to weaken the dollar. They've never gotten together and said, we need to strengthen the dollar. This is really bad. You know, it's always the dollar's gotten too strong. We need to add liquidity. We need to get the dollar lower. You know, all the QE programs were designed to weaken the U.S. dollar. Helicopter money is designed to increase U.S. dollar liquidity. The Plaza Accord was done to decrease the value of the dollar, Right. Um, you know, the, the Shanghai Accord five years ago was done to decrease the value of the dollar. All of the, all of the emergency programs set up during COVID, that was done to decrease the value of the dollar. And despite all of those programs, despite everything they've thrown at it, the dollar is still at 105 versus its peers, or the dollar index is still at 105. And it's risen dramatically versus a number of other global currencies. It's, it's really important. I mean, Part of the reason I talk about the dollar so much is I just don't think there's that much good info out there on how it actually works. And so I'm trying to fill that void. But it's also really, really hard to get kind of your global macro view right if you get the dollar wrong. I just think the dollar is the single most important variable when you're constructing a portfolio. It doesn't mean that you, I'm recommending that everybody just go out and buy dollars, but you certainly better know what's going on with the dollar. Because if you get it dramatically wrong, it's probably not going to be great for your portfolio. Um, and, and, and that, and that's why I spend so much time on it. It's actually, it's the area where I think I can add the most value. They don't need another guy out there talking about gold. They don't need another guy out there talking about equities. Um, so, you know, there's plenty of people out there that, that talk intelligently on, on those topics. So this is where I think I can provide the most value. And it's why I spend so much time doing it. You know, it's a really good point, Brent. And I, even pursuant to the dollar, I, I mean, one of the variables that you need to understand there is, it, I mean, you tell me right or wrong here, but you kind of have to have a view on inflation. A lot of this comes down to how persistent the inflation threat is going to be, what yeah. central banks end up doing, where yields are, and that informs the dollar. 
that has been the the real trick of the last couple of years because yeah, that's a notoriously difficult thing to predict or know. And even if you were to just survey people out there about what caused this inflation, is it inflation? Is it currency debasement? You get many different answers. And sure. the one thing that we, we haven't really talked about so much is oil. I, I am a fan of Michael Cow's uh, sort of theory that inflation, even if it didn't 100% originate in oil, that was a big that was a big driver for the initial inflation, and then it leapt over into stickier components of CPI. Yep. Look, we drain the SPR. <laughs> you can't drain the SPR twice. Um, right. And it looks like oil prices are set to rise again. Now we do have a we do have an election coming up, so I wouldn't be surprised if somehow uh, a rabbit is pulled out of some sort of proverbial hat and we make the prices go back down. But I think you know that's the last important part of the story that we haven't necessarily touched on, which is yeah. There's yeah. there's just. I'll just make my comment on this real quick because I know we got to jump in a minute, but I don't think there's too many things that are more deflationary or that are more inflationary than the price of oil. There's yep. a sweet spot for oil kind of between, I don't know, between 40 and 70 bucks, right? That's kind of the sweet mm-hmm. spot. Anything above 70, 75, you start to get inflationary pressures. Anything below 40 bucks, you start to get deflationary pressures. Um, my guess is that in the short term, oil pulls back. Um, you know, it's had a really good run here over the last six or seven weeks, maybe two months. Um, and I think Biden will probably sell even more from the SPR. But, um, you know, once we get past that, I think oil is probably going to go much, much higher in the years ahead. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there. So anyway, additional layer of complication. Uh, Brent, thank you so much for, for coming on here. And uh, I want to give, if, if folks want to follow you um, either with your work as a, at Santiago or uh, you have also the, the hoster of a, a podcast, which I have tuned into many of the episodes. So if you want to give listeners a little bit of a, a preview of that or where they can find you, uh, what's the best way? Sure. So my friend John Cutsmeta and I, you know, have started this podcast earlier this year. We do a couple shows a week. Um, it's if you can find it at milkshakespod.com or even on Twitter, the handle is at milkshakespod. You could find me at, at Santiago AU Fund, or you can just search for Santiago Capital. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Although it appears I may be locked out right now. I don't know what's going on with my account. So if, oh, no. You know, I, I made a joke earlier. If, you, if my account starts tweeting about US dollar hyperinflation, I've clearly been hacked. <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, I, you know, I'm pretty active on social media. And uh, my, my website is just SantiagoCapital.com. It's really just a landing page with some contact information. But if you'd like to get in touch with me, uh, regarding uh, the different services we offer. I'm happy to correspond that way as well. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, you should definitely go check out Brent's podcast. We'll link it in the show notes here and follow him on Twitter, all that good stuff. Brent, thank you so much for coming on. I always enjoy happy our conversations. Do. All right. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers.